Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring, the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. The topic for today's episode is burnout. Burnout for women who work and raise families, but for all the men listening, this applies to you too. Burnout is burnout is burnout. And depending on the amount of time you interface with your family and your children, gentlemen, this could equally apply to you. But the two ladies that we have on our program today, Jacqueline, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr and Christy Reibel are specifically going to talk about workplace burnout. And if they continue to just reference women, just hang in there because it's a topic that does apply to everybody. Let me give you a little bit more background on who these exceptional women are. Let's start with Dr. Jacqueline Kerr. Dr. Jacqueline is a mom, behavior scientist, and burnout survivor, but she's also most recently a TEDx speaker Lots of credit for doing that, Jacqueline. She is in the top 1% of most cited scientists worldwide. She left her position as a public health professor in 2018 and now hosts the podcast, Overcoming Working Mom Burnout, where she interviews researchers, diversity experts, and leadership coaches. She's on a mission to dismantle the causes of working mom burnout, you go girl, and her TEDx talk provides solutions that we can all use to change the social norms around burnout. Welcome, Jacqueline. And next is Christy, Christy Reibel. As founder and CEO of The Human Group, which is a leadership coaching and culture consultancy, Christy is dedicated to humanizing the workplace, good luck, by building caring leaders for thriving cultures. But I I know you're on the right track. She is also a vocal advocate, international speaker, and educator in support of the advancement of working mothers women, and caregivers who find themselves overloaded, underpaid, and often misrepresented. She teaches a course at Stanford titled Motherhood and Work, Challenges and Opportunities for Change, and created a film, which I I love this, Global Mothers, Global Daughters. Ladies, thank you for being here I know your schedules are crazy. So thank you very much. Thank you for having us. And thank you for addressing the topic of burnout. So this is a divorce podcast and most mothers do work. If they didn't work during the marriage, they're certainly now working once the divorce has taken place because there are two households, the same number of children, and the expenses go on and on. Jacqueline, I first of all would like to address the reason why you did the TED Talk, because the TEDx Talk, because this is going to give people a big window into who you are and why you chose that topic. And so please share with us journey to the topic. Thank you so much. And my experience was that I burned out, but I didn't even know it at the time. I was working in public health, very aware of stress management strategies to help with health. For example, I would run my dog every day, try and get lots of sleep. 
But when I actually then had a physical breakdown where I started to have panic attacks, I was also experiencing suicide ideation. I assumed that I was having a midlife crisis or uh, some sort of breakdown, and I didn't understand it as burnout. But in my burnout recovery, as I started to learn what um, might have led to my burnout, I started to see the research on burnout and understand that workplace burnout in particular is defined by the World Health Organization and recognized by the World Health Organization. But it's really important to understand it's the conditions in the workplace that also create that burnout. So I very much blamed myself, felt like I was a failure. But as I started to learn two things, one, that burnout comes from conditions in the workplace that include lack of autonomy, bias, injustice, lack of reward. That made me start to think about my experiences in the workplace. And then at the same time, I was also trying to do a lot of personal work to understand what I could have done better. How could I have been a better mom, a better wife, a better colleague? And I was reading all these books about women managers and women in leadership and starting to understand that there were true barriers for women and particularly mums in the workplace. And that these barriers are the sorts of barriers that lead to burnout. So when I did my TEDx talk, I was really thinking about, yes, working mums burn out and that that's really important and their experience is different from other groups because some other groups, for example, perhaps you're, the, well, we know the majority of CEOs are white men. So white men who have maybe experienced burnout have experienced it as overwork. And when you experience it as overwork, then yes, perhaps self-care, perhaps a vacation, perhaps time management, delegation, all, all help with that type of burnout. But the type of burnout that mums are experiencing is coming from this bias, this lack of autonomy, lack of reward in the workplace. And that's quite a different cause to the burnout and therefore a really different solution. And I think it's important also for us to engage our parents, both the, the mums and dads, and understand parental burnout because there is parental burnout. It's different from workplace burnout. And both mums and dads can struggle with that. It's when they basically feel like their role as a parent um, drains them and they're really unhappy with the role they're playing as a parent. And as I say, both, both mums and dads can, can struggle with that. And sometimes it helps to be working because then you feel like you're getting a break from being a parent. Sometimes you're experiencing it in both places, which was my experience. So tears on the way to work and tears on the way home. It was a tough time, but I'm really glad that I'm starting to understand it for myself and then for everyone else around me. Dr. Kerr, can you have burnout at home and bring that into the workplace if it hadn't existed already in the workplace? Oh, absolutely. I think how we turn up at work with our levels of energy. So if we're being drained at home and we're struggling at home, then, well, we wish we could bring that to the office and be honest about it. But so often there is lack of psychological safety at home for us to share our mental health struggles 
and our parenting struggles, whether those parenting struggles have actually tipped over into mental health issues or not, just simply the logistics, the scheduling, etc. And most workplaces in the past really wanted us to keep those two spheres of life separately. They didn't want to know what struggles you are having at home. And, and the conditions in the workplace, the psychological safety in the workplace that allows you to share your struggles, whether they're mental, physical, or, or other was not there. And that's something that's changing. And people like Christy are really working to change. But also COVID changed it. We couldn't hide the fact that we had kids when we we're on Zoom calls and they were interrupting. So work and life has blended due to COVID. And then the issues are what's going to happen next. Many people do not want to return to work. For example, women of color aren't necessarily interested in going back to the workplace if they have the option to not be at work and to have to return to those conditions of lack of psychological safety, of daily microaggressions and incivilities. But the problem is, if we have certain groups going back to the office and certain groups not going back to the office, and those groups then uh, suffer proximity bias, i.e. if you're not by the water cooler, are you biased against because you're not there in person, then that is that cycle. Bias leads to burnout and it continues. So it, it's so important that we really address these issues and real, really at the societal level because these stereotypes and this bias is built into our workplace systems. It's built into our social systems, assuming that the mothers are the, are the primary caregivers, assuming that they're not the primary care that providers, even though 41% of mums are, and assuming that we want to be superheroes. And I can tell you, we do not. We want the support that we deserve to be able to have that financial independence that you spoke about, because as you mentioned, when you go into divorce, having that independence to be able to um, survive financially is so important. And also, you know, we, we have skills and we have passions about our careers and there's things we want to do in the world other than being a mother. But I think that transition to having women being able to be financially independent because of their work that's such an important gain for women and, and it needs to be supported and it shouldn't be something that is so difficult to maintain. So the answer, the remedy to what you're, you've just described, Dr. Carr, may rest in what Christy is doing with the human group. Can you pick it up from here and explain what you're doing with the human group? And can you accomplish the remedies for Dr. Kerr that are necessary? That's our goal, Judith. That's our goal, 100%. Um, so what we're doing at the human group is really all about, as you said in the intro, it's about humanizing the workplace. And I know you chuckled and said, oh, good luck with that, right? There's a little difficulty in that when you think about it in this broad sense. But when you take it down to the simple levels of people wanting to feel seen, people wanting to be heard, and breaking down the biases through um, the ability for people to have coaching from an individual coaching perspective, from a group coaching perspective, and then from a, an opportunity to learn, right? Learn about what does it mean to be a gender intelligent leader? What does it mean 
to be a culturally intelligent leader? What does it mean to be, um, you know, understand age diversity too? All these different things, right? And have that emotional intelligence. When we have leaders that can grasp all of those things and understand it and be able to sit with their individual managers and employees and hear their stories and be able to um, try and walk in their shoes, we definitely can decrease that um, that push to to be burned out, right? And so that is a lot of what we're doing. That is the goal. The goal is to to create teams that feel psychologically safe, as Jacqueline, um, as Dr. Kerr was saying, to be able to be in a team that is diverse and feeling psychologically safe has everything to do with reducing burnout in the workplace. So while we have all these things going on at home, right, with parents and going through divorce and all this stuff going on at home, if we also have all that going on at work, then we are, as Jacqueline said, we are we are double timing. We are we are in our two jobs, our two roles, burned out in both, and that is just not sustainable. And we know that the percentages of caregivers in the workplace and dual working couples have continued to rise over the course of the last decades. And so employers can no longer look away. They can't look away. They need to address this head on. And so that is what we are helping um, organizations do is to address this head on. And so should can I assume that it's from the top down right now that you have to educate the managers and the leaders of the companies? And, and then how do you get to the employees to provide that safety net? It, it needs to come from all sides. It can't come from top down. It absolutely must be modeled by the leadership of an organization. There is That's 100 um, percent necessary. But at the same time, Middle management is incredibly important because middle management manages up and they manage down. And we also know that middle management is typically those that are the most burned out. So um, really focusing on those middle layers of the organization have the most far-reaching impacts and effects on both levels within the organization, but leaders must be modeling these things. They must be modeling. If they have children, they must be parenting out loud and saying, I am leaving early today because I have to take my child to the doctor. And we want to see men doing that too, right? Male caregivers doing that. And, and so modeling the reality of our full complex lives at work, bringing your whole self to work is a reality that we live. And so the modeling of that is critical. Is there a concern, Christy, that too much of an employee's personal life will come into the business environment and prohibit productivity? Again, that comes down to psychological safety. How safe do you feel within your teams to be able to bring your personal things to your manager, to your teams? And so too much is really dependent on that person and that team and how safe they feel 
in that environment. So if there is an employee that is feeling like they can't share anything that's happening in their personal life at work with anyone, there's no safe space for them to do that. I would say that would lead to um, more difficult working environments for sure, less engagement, less productivity at work. So that's really something to, to pay close attention to. Dr. Carr, can you add to that? Yes, I think it's really important for workplaces to understand that well-being comes first. Well-being precedes productivity. I think a lot of people think that our jobs, when we feel successful in them, that will make us feel happy. And, and that's really the productivity of your job leads to your feeling of fulfillment and therefore your happiness. But that just isn't the case. Um, yes, in some circumstances, that that type of um, flow can can occur, but it's really important that if we do not do not turn up to to work healthy, then the productivity does not follow. And so, I think a really good way to think about this is the shift that happened in schools that we also need to see in workplaces. So, for example, schools were noticing that their grades were falling. And then they started to blame the parents and say, the kids are not coming to school having eaten, rested, etc. They're coming to school unhealthy. And we start to understand that our health is related to our grades, for example, of our students. And so for ages, they just blamed the parents. And what they didn't understand in, in that finger pointing is that one, not every family has the resources to provide all the um, environments to support these kids to, to come to school rested and healthy. Um, some families, you know, if they've got shift work, the kids can be getting disturbed or playing caregiver roles themselves. So the schools then started to understand, okay, if we want the grades across the board to go up, we need to provide these um, supports in the school. And it's so important. We spend so many hours at work and so many hours for students in school. That's such an important time where we can reduce some of these disparities that exist in society through these important social institutions. And to understand our workplaces have that role as well. So once schools started to provide more nutritious meals and more opportunities for physical activity, then the students' grades improved across the board. And that's really what we need to think about in the same way in the workplace. Because again, if we're pointing the finger and saying, deal with your own well-being at home through your own self-care, that perpetuates further bias, one, because not everybody has those resources in their home to afford a therapist or a coach. And that's why coaching subsidized by employees or actually brought in by employees, like what Christy does, that's so important for disparities. So I think it's really understanding, well, you have to start with a healthy workforce and then the productivity follows. And it's the same with diversity. A diverse work, work, workforce is more innovative, has greater collective intelligence. Um, all these things come from starting with a healthy, diverse workforce, and that's important. And I think one of the things that um, Christy didn't mention yet, but I'm sure is really important to the work she does, is loyalty. I mean, we're having such a problem with turnover, and turnover is so costly. So that loyalty that comes when a manager actually shows some compassion for your situation and provide you support in that situation. That changes, 
your loyalty to a team because you realize they saw you as, as a person. Now, just back to the C-suite, since you mentioned it, and I think Christy's really right about those managers being the sandwich in the middle. There's sort of two things here. A recent report from Deloitte said that the C-suite are burning out too. But that comes back to what I said at the beginning. The type of burnout that the C-suite are experiencing is probably this chronic stress that we have all experienced due to COVID, right? The uncertainty, the fear, the anxiety. This is chronic stress and all the changes that we've had to deal with. Change can lead to burnout. You know, you know too much change leads to burnout. But so I understand that we are, as a, a society as a whole, we've been really experiencing this chronic stress. And that's what burnout is. It's chronic unresolved stress. So yes, the C-suite are experiencing it. But it's not the same because it's come from bias that they're experiencing or lack of reward they're experiencing or lack of autonomy. So again, the causes of the C-suite burnout are different. And their options are so much greater to be able to leave and, and find some other work. Um, but I think the other part about the managers that, that Christy mentioned too is if we say at the bottom of the rung, it's your problem, right? Go deal with your home stuff. Go deal with your self-care on your own. Then we assume it's an individual problem. And therefore, the managers aren't managing up. If they can say everybody, all the women of color in my team, all the women, all the marginalized groups in my team are suffering from this, then I can say this is a systemic problem that I have to then manage up. I have to pass up to the next level because this is not an individual problem where I just need to manage, you know, help man manage one individual person. This is something that is systemic and therefore I need to sort of bring to the next level as a systemic problem instead of seeing it as an individual problem. So, it is complex and complicated, but I think this is really how we need to be thinking about it. If we keep thinking about it as individual problems and self-care is the solution, we are really going to um, continue to have this huge turnover. And it's serious, right? I mean, I experienced suicide ideation, but I also read um, reports recently, again, featured maybe in the British news, not in the US news, but about the high suicide rates in American workplaces. And, and burnout can lead to, to suicide. So this is, this is not something that's just a nice to have in our workplaces. This is so important. The rates in the US um, are increasing of workplace-related suicide. And we need to address this as a society. You're so right about that. We're in the middle of a mental health crisis, so all of my mental health colleagues tell me, and exacerbated, of course, by COVID, and being separate from the world, being in our homes with our families, it certainly gave us opportunity to reevaluate our home life because we were there working and living a personal life. But then you have what you also mentioned, Dr. Carr, you have the choices now. Do you return? Do you not return? And you have companies dealing with both sides, which I expect, and I'm going to throw this over to you, Christy, I expect is causing a bit of a dilemma in how the corporation or the company is supposed to function overall. Could you please address that? Sure. I think what Dr. Kerr was talking about 
in, in well, she, many amazing things, but the piece around um, retention, right? And how important it is to for companies to retain their employees. And we are in this moment of the great resignation where COVID really ignited that because people um, started to look more internally to think more about what is my purpose, what's important in my life, how can I can I sustain, right? And the job market has been doing fine, at least in the U.S., to the extent that empl- many employees had an opportunity to look elsewhere to see if they could find something that was better suited to their individual needs. That being said, this time, is not going to last forever, right? This time where employees are, you know, are in control more or less, depending on the segment of uh, the demographic segment you're looking at. But let's say employees have the upper hand right now to search and find that company that fits their values, that fits the way they want to work, hybrid or on site, et cetera. That time is going to change sooner than we we think. And when that time happens, companies are going to be again in this position where they're going to have employees that may want to leave, but can't because the job market isn't as good. And they're going to be very unhappy if the organizations don't start to do something. So yes, that is it's sort of a double-edged sword, right? We want to retain our happy employees and keep them in our seats and keep them happy. But also when this time comes where employees aren't in control and they are stuck, well, guess what? Organizations have to do something then too, right? Because they are going to then have employees on the payroll where that are not happy, they're not engaged, that are not healthy, that are not doing the jobs they were hired to do because it's just too much to handle. And these are good employees. These are smart people. They've probably been around a long time, but this is why, depending on which way you look, it's important for organizations to address either way. You've got a good culture, address it. You've got a poor culture, address it. How do you, Christy, to continue this, how do you make the corporation, the powers that be that are going to decide whether to bring you in or not, that are going to decide that they want to be open to this new way of thinking, this new way of working, how do you make them comfortable, though, that this will add to productivity and not just become a session to talk about their personal problems? Yeah, I mean, it's been a tough transition the last decade because over 10 years ago, we did not talk about these things that we all want to be talking, employees want to be talking about at work now. They were separate, right? As Jacqueline, as Dr. Kerr had said at the very, COVID really did bring these two worlds together. We were desperately trying to separate work and personal for so long, right? There was supposed to be this dividing line. We keep our work at work and we have our home at home. Very difficult to do even pre-COVID, particularly for those that are caregivers, right? Or those that are going through a divorce or those that have 
grief related um, things in their lives. Very difficult. COVID, because of the, 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 the way we had to move onto Zoom cameras, onto living and working at home, brought these areas together, right? It forced it to happen. And there was this reality check of like, wow, people have a lot going on in their world. We have a lot more going on in our world now than we did 10 years ago. We are, we are 24-7 work environment. We are expected to be devoted to our work. We are expected to follow the ideal worker model. But at the same time, as women and as particularly as mothers, we have this family devotion model that society and history has said we must, we also must fall into this. And so women particularly and mothers are saying, I need to follow this ideal worker model and this family devotion model all at once. And it is nearly impossible to get a 10 out of 10 on both at the same time. And this is really impacting women and mothers particularly. And add divorce onto that, Judith, right? As you know, right. what the work you do. And, and that is a whole nother level of extreme. And so to bring these, what they used to be called soft skills as as leading the way for leadership now, we're calling them human skills. There's a lot of, of you know, everyone's talking about these are human skills. These are critical. In say fact, what they I, are, Christy, say what they are. Name a couple well, of skills. This is bringing empathy into the workplace. Number one, having that emotional intelligence, having the ability to connect with others right? That, that, that so those social skills, in fact, a recent Harvard business review article just came out and said, guess what's the number one most important skill a CEO must have today? Social skills, ability to connect with others. And we're talking real connection. That is more important than any length of business acumen of you know, which, which used to be a priority, right? So things are absolutely changing. These, these, uh, this ability to connect with your team, to take the time to hear and understand others' individual stories and circumstances is tantamount to a corporation's success today. I want you, Dr. Kerr, to comment on anything that jumped out at you that Christy was saying, but I just want to inject quickly. Uh, Dr. Brene Brown just came to mind because when she started talking about vulnerability and how the walls break down between you and whomever you're speaking with, if you allow yourself to be vulnerable and just say whatever it is that may be influencing you today and how you're going to perform and uh, how you're going to interface at work. I think that was huge. That was huge. So I want to throw this back over to you, Dr. Kerr. What was jumping out at you that you would like to piggyback on that Christy was saying? Well, I think first to, to just address the point you made about Brene Brown, which is she did 
you know, open up this whole ability to show that vulnerability was no longer a weakness. Now, we have a very typical model of leadership that is aggressive, competitive, and and almost none of the things that Christy mentioned. And unfortunately, those systems still mean those types of behaviors are rewarded. And we often see, this goes back to this burnout issue where I was saying lack of reward. So when men are women, perform equally, the men's potential is then judged as stronger than the woman's. And this has been shown again and again in research studies to be simple bias that men and women both have. So again, we have to change the systems so that um, instead of um, measuring people on this potential that, that that has no basis in objectivity is is not the reason it's 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 the performance so there are lots of ways in workplaces to actually institute um, less bias systems so one of them is not to have self appraisals when when we go up for um, promotion is to have structured interviews for hiring and promotion, to have diverse teams making the decisions. Because again, a single manager brings their own bias and they want to then have this unstructured conversation and talk about golf with a candidate. And so that lack of structure, the lack of objectivity are all the things that that then bring bias into the system. So there are lots of ways and there are books, for example, by um, a Harvard professor, the head of the business school at Harvard, Dr. Iris And she has a whole area of research showing that we can design workplaces and society to reduce inequalities. And this is all based on on really strong studies and scientific evidence. But I think just back to that point about Brené Brown's work, she has also partnered with Tarana Burke, again, to understand what is vulnerability like for a person of color? And there were so many stories in that book written by um, women of color, mothers of color, and basically saying it is not safe for them. It is too much of a risk for them to be vulnerable, that in some ways that is actually still unfortunately, a white privilege because the level of safety that they have to have for themselves and for their families constantly means that they they do not have that opportunity. It's just not safe for them yet to be as vulnerable as we might be able to be as white women, for example. So I think, again, there's so much that comes back to that psychological safety that we have to have. So it's okay that all groups actually show up and talk about their personal experiences at work. And I think we've still got a long way to go there. There's been enough in the news, in in social media, uh, discussing about well, with COVID and the lack of um, the lack of medical attention available if they get sick versus in a different community that may be more Caucasian, more have a little bit more money, uh, they have more availability of that. But talk to me about where my thinking may be wrong. It's to me, it seems like when there is an African-American mom as the sole parent in a household, that parent seems to be a very strong parent. And I listen to their children reference them, 
in talks on media about how strong these these women were being the the sole providers of their families. How does that not translate into the workforce, that strength? It does. And it does. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really interesting. There's a couple of things there about resilience models of stress that I can speak to there. And, and there are definitely fantastic books, for example, by Danny McLean, um, and basically saying that she, as a mother, had to really, really always be there for her kids and and advocate for her kids. And that was something that she had to do and there wasn't a choice for her to do that. And again, the strength of these women of color is incredible. And there's data, for example, from an organization called Information, where basically they're saying that women of color have so much resilience and innovation that they bring to the workplace. So that's partly why we need such diverse teams. Um, But I think one of the things we have to acknowledge is even in the medical research, that we're not acknowledging this resilience, this this incredible ability that um, people of color have to adapt to the stress that they're experiencing. And actually, I I just helped a young um, woman of color submit a grant to the National Institutes of Health, basically sort of explaining that even our genetic and other models of stress have assumed that, that black communities are disadvantaged and have not actually given enough credibility to their experiences of coping with stress and how that could have had epigenetic changes in their body. So it's cutting egg science that you're actually sort of tapping into here, Judith, that we, because of our medical model that has come so much from a a white framework and that we know is provides such disadvantage to communities of color and individuals of color in how they're treated in the healthcare system and even how the data are collected. Because if we rely on healthcare system data and then um, black communities aren't using the healthcare in the same way, our, our data that we've collected over these decades around stress and disease all has its bias. And that's why it's so important that we now have community-based research instead of just this medical model of research. So it's exciting stuff as far as I'm concerned in terms of that we are changing the stories. And when young women of color remain researchers and don't burn out from their research professions, then we can change these models of care. And I'm excited for that future too. Christy, if you could do exactly what you wanted to do and implement your ideas in a corporation, what would you do? What would this look like? I love that question, Judith. (laughs) That's a great question. I think we talked about it a little bit, but I think at the end of the day, what it's coming down to is self-awareness, number one. Leaders must become self-aware. And predominantly, this does mean white leaders need to become educated, self-aware to their own biases, educated to the stories of others. And so it starts there, self-awareness, I think for all of us, right? Once we have self-awareness, we have the ability to better connect, build better relationships with our teams, with our people that we work with. 
which then leads to what we've been talking about all along. It leads to greater psychological safety because when you, we know, as, as Dr. Kerr said earlier, we know the importance of bringing diversity together in, a, in an organization, on teams. Smart companies get that now on paper, philosophically, they know that this has to happen. And so, yes, there's been a hiring push to do this, but we also know that we can't just bring in a person of color and have everything be okay, right? That doesn't solve it. That maybe adds diversity on paper, but if we again, don't have these other pieces of self-awareness and understanding and trust and relationship building, we are not going to bring the value. We are not going to be able to experience the value that difference brings to a team and to an organization. So it becomes even more important for the, for, for leadership, to start modeling these things, to start bringing a trusting environment, um, you know, together and to really build these, um, this feeling of safety, right? This feeling of safety. So all those things. And again, this is about leaders. This is about employees. This is about really everyone in an organization to, to build that that self-awareness. But how does self-awareness get addressed? Because you can easily have executives and managers saying, well, I'm self-aware. I know what's going on. What don't I know? <laughs> that's a great, that's great. Oh, you do it though. You're right. You're right. And, and that's where everyone, this is, this is where what we do at the human group is we have this blend of group and individual coaching. The group coaching is really together as a team talking about things, feeling safe to explore topics and having it be a space where it's okay to explore those topics. And alongside that is this individual coaching. Coaching is a, it, it's exploded over the last few years. There's no, it, it's, it's not um, a secret as to why it's exploded because of the mental health crisis we're saying. So those individuals who felt as though, well, I'm not having a mental health crisis. It would just be nice to talk to someone. Whether or not they're having a mental health crisis doesn't matter. The end of the day, everyone needs someone to talk to in a space that is that feels comfortable and confidential and where where you can explore these areas within yourself. And that's hard for a lot of leaders to do, right? It takes time, right? There are a lot of leaders who are not ready to do that yet. But in time, the more we can train ourselves to vulnerability, as Brene Brown says, that is the path to courage and, and, and really start to put those skills at the top of the list of what's important to be a good leader, that's when we can start to see differences in the workplace. And if I can just sort of bring the science back into that skill development, um, because as a behavior change scientist, it's so important that we move from awareness, that self-awareness through intention, which is we really do want to make a change into actually making the change that is action. 
So one of the, the things about coaching is it does develop these skills. It gives you so many opportunities to learn, to actually practice, to get feedback, to have each other cue each other so that you actually are moving into action. So there's a whole area of behavior science that, that is about skills development and not just awareness. Because the problem with the awareness, and this is where our research has also shown the big problem with unconscious bias training. Unconscious bias makes you aware of the issues. And then what people say is, now I'm aware, I'm finished. The work is finished. From now on, I'm an aware person, so I just have to be myself and go forward. So in some situations, the unconscious bias training has actually led to poorer behaviors in the workplace, if if no change in behavior as well, because awareness is important, like it's a really necessary step, but it is not sufficient. You have to develop the skills. You have to practice them day on, day on into the workplace. And this is the other place where bias and burnout comes together. So essentially our brains are hardwired to think in stereotypes, right? That's that's essentially how we're, we're hardwired. So when you're trying to reduce bias, you have to mitigate that, that bias, that stereotype that is the first thing that comes into your brain. Now, again, coaching and still skills development brings these other pathways, neurological pathways that you start to deepen and rely upon. But when you're exhausted, when you're in burnout, your brain stops being able to access those other pathways and the effort that you have to put in to to mitigate that first response that your brain wants to go to, the effort that that takes when you're exhausted and you have brain fog, for example, which is a symptom of of burnout, then all those efforts, um, uh, you're just going to struggle. So actually, we have data showing that physicians who are burned out become more racially biased. And when their burnout recedes, they reduce their behavior and their racial bias. Why? So it's Why? so important because, because our brains can't, it takes more effort to reduce our bias because we are hardwired to, okay. to, be, to, to follow stereotypes. Not only are we hardwired, but to be honest, society constantly rewires us. I mean, we're, we're, we're um, hit by these examples all the time. And, and again, we're not really aware of it. And it is kind of the, the main pathway in our brain. So it takes so much effort to actually, you know, become practiced in different behaviors. Agreed. So let's conclude because we're getting to the end of our time with the person going through divorce. So when a person is going through divorce, They've got the job of divorce and it becomes this job that they live with from the time they get up till the time they go to bed. Then they have their other job that earns them money, but they bring everything that's inside of them to their job from their home. And most people do not want to let anybody know at their work that they are getting divorced. And I have my theories about this because I work with it every day. I think there's an embarrassment around getting divorced sometimes, depends on your culture, just depends on your family, just depends, depends. Some people feel like a failure because they're getting divorced. And that just that idea of failure drowns you and you can barely breathe. And then you experience, Dr. Kerr, what you experienced with your burnout. It's no different. So, Christy, 
Um, let's just end with an example of people are getting divorced at any given day, a whole bunch of people in any company are getting divorced. And it's going to show in their work productivity. Is there any way off the top of your head, or maybe you've thought about this already, that that person getting divorced can possibly share with somebody in a safe relationship at work so that if they miss a deadline, if they become irritable, if they seem like they have a little bit of brain fog, somebody can understand it at work? How, how can they do this? Again, that this is, it, first of all, it, it is the toughest time. I just want to acknowledge that until an individual goes through divorce, they have no idea the impact, even if it's expected, amicable, whatever you want to, to term it, it is a lot. So when you said there are these two full-time jobs, add on for those that have children, and then it's a, another full-time job where you're really trying to ensure that your children feel okay through all this process. And that's, that's a tough thing too. So coming into work and not having anyone to talk to is incredibly tough to keep that a secret. If there is no outlet, it doesn't matter whether it's divorce or another major um, thing, crisis, grief, happening in your life. If there is not anyone to talk to, this is when we hit a, a wall, right? This is this is when things get go into a direction that no one wants to go down. So by organizations providing coaching services, providing um, the opportunity for these people to reach out, in a safe space is number one, so critical. And the second thing, you know, one of the main reasons why I started the human group is because prior to starting this, I was working, um, we were building an organization that was very much focused on how are we going to best support working mothers? It was a, we were very focused specifically on women and mothers and how to achieve gender balance in organizations because this leaky pipeline of women dropping out was something that we were looking closely at, right? And the biggest learning that came from that time is this. Those women, mothers, those going through divorce, the number one reason why they felt like they could stay and continue and manage was because their direct leader was had emotional intelligence, was empathetic, gave them time, listened, connected, and it's everything about their direct leader. The culture of the entire organization could be rated poorly, but if those individuals had a strong leader with these behaviors and these skill sets, that individual stayed and felt like they could make it through. And I think that's the biggest goal that I have is that we have organizations full of these kinds of leaders. That's what I hope to see in, in the world for my daughters, who hopefully won't have to make these choices between parenting or, you know, 
partnership styles, work, all these things, right? That they can just know that they will find cultures in companies that meet their needs. I am going to throw this one example out to both of you as we finish this wonderful, wonderful talk. And that's something that I read either this morning or yesterday on the internet. And it's uh, post the Roe v. Wade decision that came out of the Supreme Court a couple of days ago. And I believe I read, and tell me if any of you read this too, that J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, who seems to be one of those leaders, correct me if I'm reading this wrong, that is very much into cultural advancement and integration. And they're taking a stand against it. He started, I, I believe it's their company that started speaking out about how very important it was to support women. Did either of you read this? I've not read that one, but I have seen hundreds and hundreds of okay. corporations that are taking a strong stand um, against this ruling. And it's all around the health care of women, 100% that women deserve the right to choose the health care that is best for them. And that stand's been taken by Cisco, that stand's been taken by Levi's, that stand's been taken. I mean, the list goes on in my news feeds and algorithms. We are at a state, we are, we are at a time when companies can no longer stay neutral to big issues. And I think companies know that today and they're having to take a stand in terms of what they believe in, what the, the base of their employees believe in. And so I'm seeing lots of companies taking a stand. This must be warm your hearts. Dr. Kerr, would you like to jump in on that? Yes, so I think it's really interesting because we we have also seen um, women's organizers, for example, like Reshma Sarjani, try to become a congressperson herself and also then try to influence Congress. And actually, when I interviewed her on my podcast, she said, I can't wait for Congress to grow a heart. I need to the businesses to do this work. So she basically shifted and said, I want businesses to provide subsidized childcare and I want businesses to provide paid leave. Now, that's what's so important is what's the businesses and, and businesses like Patagonia and other ones have been doing this. There is so much evidence to show this, but unfortunately, businesses still don't quite see the business case for themselves. I mean, there's so much evidence, but we hope that once businesses actually understand the business case themselves and see the benefits of doing this in retention and in productivity, then they'll realize we now have to influence Congress. Because I think that's what's so important is individual women and individual mothers. It's, it's not our job as the already disadvantaged to basically advocate for these rights. Yes, we're going to, and we're all going to try as much as we can. But actually, the businesses are the ones with the power to do this. So that's why they need to step up and do this advocacy work. And that's where I think we'll see the difference. And kind of back to what would a world look like where this actually works. The National Academy of Medicine has guidelines for burnout prevention, and they start at the board level. And they say when the board is actually accountable for the well-being of their employees, then it flows. So that's what I see. If we actually made well-being and, and I mean, 
women's rights in the constitution, but it's the same in a workplace. If we actually saw well-being and equal rights as part of our key performance indicators, then the board would have to hold the CEO accountable. Then the CEO would have to hold his managers accountable and that everything would follow from there well-being and and equal rights would be prioritized, invested in, and we'd be measuring it. And then we'd actually realize when we tell people in a friendly email, go look after yourself this weekend or take a vacation and it doesn't work, we'd actually stop doing that and start providing the things we need. So I think that's what's so important is actually if we start to measure these things because we're going to be have to report on them, then we actually also start to connect the solutions to the most impactful activities that change those metrics. So in my mind, that's how I kind of see that it can flow. But yeah, businesses are such an important partner in advocacy and um, they they have so much power to do this. So I'm glad that they are stepping up and, and taking this role. And I hope they also then do it for paid leave and childcare and Yes, you can tell. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and coming from the UK, I'm just so astounded by, you know, the abortion rights and the healthcare services in this country, to be honest. So it's not like we don't know how to do this and to have successful models from elsewhere. But um, there has to be such a major change in, in the culture. And it's a challenge. Invest in your employees and they will invest in you, the company. Is that the truest statement we can make ending this? That is truth. Yes. I appreciate the time you've both given us. That was an amazing conversation. And I am extremely happy that I've met you. I'm thrilled about the work that you're both doing. And I'm encouraged now. I can too easily become discouraged looking at life, but I'm very encouraged right now. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking your time to spend with us and share the work that you're doing and your insights on the changes necessary for a viable, integrated society between business and our personal lives. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Judith. And I thank all of you for listening. I hope you benefited tremendously from this discussion because I think it was phenomenal. You may comment on anything and share your ideas through my website, theamicabledivorceexpert.com. And please, if you have any ideas for any other episodes piggybacking off of this, I would appreciate your comment. Subscribe, share, You just had one of the best programs you could possibly enjoy. And as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else. 